in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Well, the question was whether they were troubled by what I see as this phenomenon of class being conflated with race and so that white people can think that they're exempted (laughs) from the huge problems that are descending upon them. And it doesn't also really um, give you any sort of uh, critique on capitalism and it becomes the evil of white people. Like if you look at, you know, Toure Reed was telling me this one day when discussing his students and the way they look at slavery. And if slavery isn't any sort of labor issue, and it's right. just the evil that uh, yeah. white people do against against the black people, and then and then it also it also makes black and slave like the same, almost like slave slave was an identity or something, which to me is is like crazy. But it's, yeah, it's insane to think. But you know that was a big reason for me to even start wanting to do this show. I mean, first of all, I started doing the show because it was going to be something for me to do in my downtime of touring and. Uh, traveling all over the planet, <clears throat> usually in what we call B markets, <laughs> which are the less populated areas in, in a lot of middle America, um, even places, even the middle of places like Canada and Mexico and Brazil and Europe. Um, getting to know these people that were definitely harmed by capitalism helped shape my view on the world and it. And I wanted to have a show that helped my people understand and kind of reinvigorate a tradition that Pascal and I, I think are trying to bring back of having a critique outside of, of just simply of simply race. I mean, even if you look at the, the civil rights movement, um, you know, the March on Washington, you know, isn't the March on lunch counters. It's the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you well, know. it was material. It was material. I mean, I think, I think um, there was a piece, I think, I think by Adolf Reed um, from a while back that was like, it, yeah, everything in the civil rights era wasn't like, it wasn't this abstract, like anti-racism. It was like about all the demands that like black civil rights leaders and all the participants and all the marches and everything like had really specific like material demands that were like affecting everyone as a racialized group, but it wasn't like, but it was about like, we as the racialized group want the material, um, like here's the demands that we want. Um, it like, which is a thing that like now it's like almost, it's just become so abstract. I think for a lot of people where like Mm -hmm. there often like aren't material demands or analysis really even hinged to the ideas. It's just sort of like this, I don't know. Yeah, it just—I mean, it depends so, on where you're, where you're listening or looking for the conversations. But I think, in a general mainstream sense, it's like it's like what is even being talked about. You know? And stuff gets real performative. Like I was having a conversation <clears throat> with the, with the people I'm I'm staying with in in the lovely central coast of California. It does. <laughs> hey, and, you're right up you the know, street from me right now. Yeah. What it reminds oh. me of is the book, The Great Wurlitzer, which documents how with big money from the FBI and CIA, they intended and quite well succeeded in perverting 
the women's movement with Gloria Steinem, prime CIA agent in charge, mm. and the civil rights movement into a gender-only women's movement and a black power movement instead of a people power movement, and that it was directed by the CIA and FBI against class. And I do remember from my feminist history an early meeting where Gloria Steinem was saying that we are all in the same boat and the head of the welfare moms stood up and said, well, you're, you know, you're first class on that boat. I'm in steerage. We're not in the same boat. Our experience is really different. And a lot of people clapped because the attempt to, re to allow class to be ignored was painfully successful. Mm -hmm. And we do have to undo it. And so I, I applaud mm -hmm. that you're doing that. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that it's important for me to really conceptualize <clears throat> in this is that how this is a consequence, as uh, Dr. Harriet was saying, of a particular shift in American political discourse and thought away from rooting the problems of society in political economy. Mm -hmm. And that the one of the main reasons that is, is that, you know, in the post-civil rights Cold War era with the persistent belief that the threat of, you know, communist in the uh, Soviet Union uh, thre threatens the United States' ability to function as a capitalist empire, the need to kind of move away from having politics, particularly black politics, feminist politics, or other politics, which people now call identity politics, away from challenging capitalism, I think is typified by the development of things like postmodernism in academia and other types of concepts as well that start to root the uh, suffering of people in quote-unquote culture and, and, and their narratives and ideas as opposed to the structures that actually facilitate large parts of the suffering. I think one of the things I remember I had actually posted this on social media, and it was fascinating to see the, re the reactions I got. I asked the question, if slavery was not profitable yeah. to Western capital, would West Europeans have brought Africans over to the Western Hemisphere. In other words, if if the African enslaved simply just died, as it was believed that Native Americans in in, in the Caribbean had right. died when they were true, would the would the Europeans have just consider, consistently brought them over to see them not. die? And there were there were a couple of individuals who were saying, well, maybe because their belief somehow was that the transatlantic slave trade was about something else besides economic development and aggrandizement of European empire. And I think mm -hmm. the obvious answer to that question is, of course, they would not have. Because right. The main reason why the decision was made to not use Native Americans and move to Africans is that it was believed that Africans would more, be more physically resilient in their ability to withstand the vicissitudes of actual slavery in, mm -hmm. in the Caribbean, particularly in Hispaniola. You know, there was a very famous friend, uh, Spanish priest named Las, Casca, Las Casas, who was the first to advocate to bringing African slaves because he realized that Native Americans were dying and could not withstand the uh, the illnesses that the Europeans were actually uh, uh, transmitting to them. So there was another factor too, and that's that indigenous peoples shared a language and a culture, and so had a solidarity 
and often committed suicide rather than submit. Whereas if you take people from their varied countries with their varied language and bring them to an entirely different territory, they're easier to enslave. Right. Well, the, the larger point that I was trying to convey was that it, be, it had become so difficult for certain, particularly younger uh, uh, black folk to understand that slavery was about economic extraction yeah. for the purposes of, right. of, of growing wealth and empire mm-hmm. because they were focused on this notion of the, the sick, torturous kind of demonic evil nature of white people. And what I find is that one of the reasons in which racial discourse is stuck in this posture of focusing on black black trauma and suffering Mm -hmm. is that the aim is not to actually necessarily resolve the problems of black people, but to actually create a certain kind of capacity to say this is happening because white people are evil. And my position is that even whether we agree or disagree that white people are evil or not, which I don't believe that they are in lately at all, I believe systems can be evil. I don't believe people are genetically evil at all. If they are, what good does that get to do in terms of actually resolving the problem to simply say this is happening because they're evil? And what we realize is that no one is saying this because they want to resolve the problem. They're saying this partly, one, because they want to have the moral high ground in saying it, and two, is because some people want compensation for being able to make, quote-unquote, whiteness capable of being equated with guilt to Mm -hmm. get those right. concessions that I talked about early on. And this is why this particular posture is what I call a class politics, that racial grievance has become a class politics because it's not really about solving the core reasons why black poor and working class people disproportionately suffer. It's right. about black literary, black chattering class and literary fi- figures who are promoted by the liberal uh, democratic or liberal apparatus, the left flank of capital, to be ventriloquists of black suffering in order to aggrandize yeah. themselves and increase their notoriety and, and compensation for speaking for people who are at that present moment not from their class, but because right. they seem authentic because they are black, they can be those ventriloquists. And a perfect, perfect example... Right of someone who weaponizes this politics the most, who was, who was recently in the public sphere, is Tana Easy Coates. That's just okay. what I was thinking. Yeah. Also, you know, what it does is it doesn't say what makes people evil. What brings out the evil in people? Why was race right. assigned at all? Yeah. Race didn't exist until you wanted to oppress people. It wasn't there as a concept. And then it was attached to the features of the people you needed to oppress. Also, it doesn't look at the collusion of the North in this, in the manufacture of textiles, which was the big thing. Cotton textiles from the South, from slave labor. Well, if you think about roots, I think we all know. Like the movie or? Yeah, the the TV miniseries Roots. yeah, Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Um, Alex like, Haley's uh, like, uh, novel, like Kunta Kinte and stuff like that. Kunta or? Kinte, yeah, uh, cutting off his feet <laughs> or his foot, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. beating him till he says his name is Toby. Watching that trauma, and that was in the late seventies, and it and it actually that show actually went on throughout the eighties and and 
different kind of, I don't want to say spinoffs because they had like roots. The next generation, you want more of this? We'll give you more. Look, it's them in the 50s with Jim Crow. And yeah. then you look at movies like 12 Years a Slave. I, I would even throw the Django movie in there. It's yeah. all sinister white people being sinister for sinister's sake. Yeah. And the well, evil is an With an occasional in good white thrown in. Gotta well, have the good white thrown in because that's the yeah. only way you can get free as a black person is the good and then, yeah. and then And then that kind of, I think that also, this is a whole other side thing, but then it's just like, oh, I want to be the ally. Because I think something probably a lot of white people struggle with was, oh, how do I be a good ally and, and stuff like that? So it's like, oh, well, that guy... He's like, he shot the slave master in the head. So like, I, you know, I want to shoot the slave master in the head or whatever, but it's like not, again, it's so like abstracted where it's like, but how does this even translate to like how, so this also kind of makes me think like, I'm, I'm looking at the, the questions that I sent you guys and like, cause this is getting into that, like the black trauma spectacle thing, right? That's sort of the mm-hmm. theme I think of what, when you guys had uh, Catherine Liu on, like, I just like, I was just really blown away by that discourse because well, but okay, actually just to rewind though, because I think you've already kind of laid the grounds for like, there's a sort of political economy function for this like black trauma spectacle. So mm-hmm. we're already kind of in that, but a sort of um, a side uh, or related question though, right? So, because us working in mental health and like, I'm I'm of a younger generation of, of, you know, training into the mental health field. Harriet's like, her training was like decades ago. And so I see constantly that what's happening right now, and I've like chatted with Catherine Liu about this and like, she finds it kind of disturbing is like all this stuff we're talking about, the sort of like the anti-racism, like the way that the anti-racism stuff is being talked about is not only is it infused within like, you know, HR departments, corporate departments, universities and stuff, but like mental, the mental health profession. And I don't want to disparage it completely and be like, Oh, it's just a whole bunch of ideology or something. Right. Cause I, what I want to ask is, is there, is there something good about like, let's say, uh, like psychologizing some of this to say like, okay, you got this mass of white people and, and other, I don't know, non-black people or something. And they're, they're watching TV and they're watching movies and they're listening to the discourse. And maybe it's occurring to them for the first time, like, wow, there's all this trauma that black people have experienced. Right. So, and there's already, already when I say that, right. It's like, mm-hmm. is there already a problematic kind of essentialism? Like, cause that, is that even accurate I, to say like, oh, had, all black people anyway? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was having a, I was having a conversation uh, with the, with the people I was staying with and, and I brought up why I hate land acknowledgements. I was like, I hate land oh. acknowledgements. I don't know if you guys have to deal with that in your, in your yeah. circles. Well, you and me are on Chumash land right now, by the way. So oh. <laughs> I don't, we're I'm both. Trying to, All right. I'm, I'm, trying to be <laughs> I'm trying to be insensitive to the plight of natives, but I know. Yeah, yeah, I was mm-hmm. on this one. I was on a tour with a with a much larger act, and they would start every show with a land acknowledgement, mm-hmm. and they would say, um, "We're on Chumash land, and mm-hmm. uh, if you want to give your land back, we have people that can help facilitate that." And I thought to myself, first of all, who the hell would want to do that? Yeah. We're at a, we're at a, we're at a kind of underground avant-garde fucking rock show. So no one, sorry for cursing. And no like a garage. Here, oh, you can curse. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> no one here owns any land. And if they do. They're not giving it away. They're either. not giving it away to some yahoos uh, from the other side of the, the planet. And just because you said so. And third of all, then what? Yeah. And, and. They would sit, they would sell their merchandise on said stolen land that yeah. actually had a lot of, you know, uh, native Ugh. sentiments on it. 
that was that was kind of interesting, and and none of the proceeds went to uh, any sort of native causes. It was just a cool thing to say. And then as the tour progressed, even some of the the opening acts, the local opening acts, would would do the same thing. And and then uh, it, God, it, it just kind of felt oh so oof. performative. It is. But and is that it is, yeah. and it's very much the conflict between Malcolm X towards his later years saying it's not just color. Mm -hmm. We all have to get together as a class. And just before he got shot and Martin Luther King doing the same thing just Mm -hmm. before he got shot. And that whole difference between Malcolm X at the end and Elijah Muhammad, who made this black evil the issue for the, um, you know, for the black Muslims, mm-hmm. that, that they really captured that difference that you're talking about. Well, but, okay, but this, this, this trauma question though, right? Cause like, cause I, I see that the connection you just jumped from, like, I was asking like the back black trauma thing and then you, cause like, it's interesting, but I'm, what I'm hearing from that is you're implying, well, okay, let's also talk about like indigenous trauma stuff, right? Like that we, if we're really going to trace back the amount of like violence and suffering of colonialism and the slave trade and stuff, right? Like, cause that's the other difficulty. It's like, you can actually, you could, I mean, this is the tricky part. I guess this is where the, what they call a, a oppression Olympics can get. It's like, Oh great. Right. Like now you're opening up a thing. If somebody says, well, Oh, I'm Irish or what about what they did to the mm-hmm. Irish or, you know, I don't know whatever. or, or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, the, but the thing is like, cause I want to, I'm always trying to hold, I think in the, in the therapy world, it's like, our job is literally to be as compassionate as we can with people like for our living. And like, I, it's like, there is, I've been in like trainings and I've like read, you know, newer, newer books in the mental health field where things like this are being, um, it's just a a statement like, you know, uh, maybe not the term black trauma, but I think like intergenerational trauma is like a really, really common phrase now. Right. Like, like popularly, popularly and in mental health for sure. And like, it's hard for me sometimes with this like political economy perspective where I'm wondering like how valid of a concept is that and what do we do about it? Can I, yeah, can I, I tell a story? Work. Can I tell a story real quick about my time? And, I, and I, I'm not a mental health professional, but I definitely did work in with the unhoused. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a facility that we were only taking in people with severe mental health problems and older people. Mm-hmm. Um, during, during the, the first parts of the pandemic here in, in California with the, uh, it's called Operation Room Key for those that don't know that got rolled out where all these hotels that were vacant, not all right. hotels, but a lot of hotels that were vacant were getting occupied by mm-hmm. um, the county, counties throughout California and uh, and homeless, homeless people uh, could stay in these places and they were usually run by not the county, but uh, run by nonprofit organizations. And I got a job with one of these nonprofits uh, and mm-hmm. one of these shelters. And one of the things that hit me was a lot of the people that worked uh, for the nonprofit came from uh, prison. Huh. Worked with a lot of murderers, um, a, lot, a lot of guys that were locked in for like 20 plus years. Um, and sometimes they would know the people in the facility from their past life. And there was a handful of young children in there, very, very small amount. Um, and 
one of the kids or two of the kids, their mom, uh, one of my coworkers who had, who had been in, in prison for, for uh, some time, 20 some years, had known the kid's grandma and grandpa when he was out running the streets. Mm-hmm. And the stories that he would tell, and and not in a in a cool story like when I tell you tour stories kind of way, these tragic stories that he tells of, mm-hmm. um, being around these kids' mom when she was a baby and they were all getting high and like robbing stores, and yeah. the finding out that one of the kids who was twelve hadn't been to school s- since the second grade. Jesus. Um, that's generational trauma. And none of these yeah. kids were black, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. Um, and it was trauma on another level that I couldn't really wrap my head around. Mm-hmm. And I am a black person from the urban inner city. I was born in Oakland, California. I grew up in, in Richmond, California. And a lot of my life mm-hmm. has maybe some of the stereotypical trappings um, that people want to use as some sort of authentic black experience, Mm. drug addicted parent, uh, getting the lights turned off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I I get that, that, that way of life, but even these kids lives was beyond my comprehension because I couldn't understand having a grandmother that was still strung out. Mm. Mm. Damn. And living and that, in a car. Like these yeah. kids lived in a in a freaking car by the train tracks before COVID. COVID got them in a in a shelter, got them a house. COVID got them in my facility. And the first thing I wanted to do was, well, you gotta learn how to read, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and we got a school program for them. We got we got books donated. And it was fascinating to kind of think about that for a second when we talk about things like well this trauma is, is generational as I'm in, a, in a, a nice restaurant with a bunch of my black friends that all have college degrees mm-hmm. right they didn't live they didn't even live my life yeah but um, you you have to say yeah. what kind of society throws children away like that mm-hmm what kind of family system do we have that abandons children to somebody who got knocked up? Wait a minute. What's going on here on every level? But the, yeah, to, I mean. To abandon people on that level. But the crazy, the crazy thing to me too is like, I, I, I just, I'm actually slightly hungover, so I don't even have the capacity to like really get into my trauma story. And we're not, you know, obviously that's not what we're here to do anyway, but I have a crazy ass trauma story. Yes. I'm a white guy. I, you know, section eight housing. I mean, I have, if I told like, I could tell certain parts of my shit and if mm-hmm. someone wasn't looking at me, they'd be like, oh, you must be a black person. Right. Like mm-hmm. I have, I have like, because of the stupid stereotypes we have in our society. Right. But like, I've had conversations with friends. Like li- I've lived in Santa Barbara, California for the last, I don't know, 15 years or something. And I've like people that grew up here that have like, you know, one parent's a professor and one parent's this other thing or whatever, <laughs> yeah. who are like non-white somehow that like we've been in conversations where like they're talking about things. I'm just thinking back. I'm just like, I, you don't have, you have no idea what the shit's like in my head kind of. Mm-hmm. And I, and it's like, I can't kind of, because I'm a white guy, they'll just be like, Oh, you know, we'll shut the fuck up. What do you know? Right. And like, right. that shit is so weird to me. I think like going through, cause I really loved like black studies uh, classes in college and like, you know, all the, you know, I'm, 
I'm about, I mean, there's certain forms of identity politics that I think are like beautiful and important and like crucial for us to, I think, build like a sort of collective empathy and understand multicultural understanding in America and, and, and whatnot. But like the, the way that that kind of thing, I think, I think what we're maybe naming is like this sort of intergenerational trauma thing can become this super weaponized, uh, like interpersonal and class politics thing. Maybe that Pascal, I don't know if that was what you were maybe going to comment on a minute ago, because you were saying that earlier, I think before we hit record, right? That some of the, some of the, the race politics stuff ends up serving the function as a class politics yes. in a way, right? I mean, Adolf Fried, I think is like most known for like writing about this a bunch Yeah, where it's like, suddenly there's a class, there's a class analysis that's emerging in a situation. And then someone pulls this thing to be like, mm. they like take it this other direction that like kind of doesn't apply maybe. And like, or maybe I guess I'm getting vague with it, yeah. but I guess I've, I've seen that I've experienced it. And it's just like, damn, that's really hard for us to like, to have some solidarity if that's, if that's where that's going to yeah, well, go. Denial. It's denial of class. And it's in this capitalist system, they've gotten away with that really long. It wasn't till 2011 that Occupy reintroduced that mm. to America because from the fifties with the anti-communist crusades, until 2011, that's a long time to deny exploitation and capitalism. It well, really I is. Part, I think mm -hmm. part of the problem that we have here is that what people are focusing now with, particularly with the disparities discourse, is that, mm -hmm. well, how do you deal with the fact that black people only make up 14% or 13% of the population, but they make up 50% of homeless people? Mm -hmm. And when I, I hear, in other words, they were used, they are obvious, and I don't think I would deny it, I don't think Jason would deny it, or Adolf or anyone else would deny that there are huge disparities yeah. in the ways in which black and brown people are victimized by capitalism in the way white people are victimized by capitalism. Yes. That's absolutely true. Yes. And I don't, no one is arguing that that should be ignored, but those realities are rooted in political economy. And every time I hear someone mention those disparities, I ask a simple question. Why is it shocking that we have these massive disparities in this contemporary moment when up until literally the decade I was born in the 1960s, over 60% of black labor was relegated to sharecroppers or domestic workers. Right. What does that actually mean? That means literally up until the decade I was born, the majority of black workers were doing the same kind of work that they were doing during slavery, maybe without yes. the same brutality. So what I'm saying is that if the American political economy throughout most of the 20th century relegated over half of black labor to that type of work, why exactly are we shocked that after that decade of the 60s, when black people transition into the 70s and the country is already in a 
period of massive deindustrialization. So all of those good middle-class factory jobs that were used to lift the white poor into the middle class during the New Deal are now starting to evaporate for everyone. Mm -hmm. And those sharecropper and domestic worker jobs are being made obsolete because of the changing of the economy and the introduction of technology to make that work obsolete. How was it shocking that disproportionate numbers of black people also with the rise of crime that you start to see in the 60s and 70s, because there's already so much black poverty, why are we surprised that in the 50 years after that particular decade, that when there has been no political energy towards addressing poverty rooted in the problems of capitalism during that 50 years, that we're shocked that those numbers metastasize. Yet in the same 50-year period, we have had copious amounts of race-first, race-reductionist politics, because we haven't had class politics. And what has that class-first, race-first gotten us? It got us that in 2008, we had a loss of 35 to 50% of black wealth during the subprime mortgage crisis with no recourse under a first black president. Yes. So again, if we're going to talk about how the legacy of all this history, his trauma, historic trauma is the reason uh, that, that black people are poor and suffering, how is it that one of the greatest costs of causes of black wealth loss doesn't even come from Jim Crow or the legacy of slavery. It comes from something that happened less than 20 years ago. Right. And another cause in terms of the domestics and sharecroppers is that FDR excluded them from the labor protections. Yep. Domestic that work and that farm labor. That, that has a complicated history as well. I'm, that's obviously true. But one thing you have to realize is that there were more white Southern agricultural workers that were affected by the exclusion of Social Security of labor than blacks in aggregate because there were larger numbers that were in that work. But only because there was a larger portion of black labor that was in that position that mm-hmm. it had a disproportionate effect right. on 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 black labor. There were definitely parts, large parts of the New Deal that disproportionately did not include uh, black people into the capacity to benefit from to the same way as whites were lifted into the middle class. There's no question about that because particularly Southern domestic labor, because blacks largely were in the South, wanted to keep them relegated to those poor types of jobs. Right. But at the same time, we have to realize that even the New Deal was something that was celebrated by certain segments of the black community because it did increase union participation yes. in the job world. But again, because of the nature of the political economy and the Southerners in the Senate, it did not re- it did not include the same benefits. Definitely, right. and, and also we we kind of downplay that 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 white Southern uh, sharecropper as well. Um, yeah. If you think about from a, from a music perspective, and I'll probably talk about this a little bit, music, that's how I relate to a lot of this stuff. Yeah. The, the outlaw country genre that really blows up in the in the 70s huh. comes out of white sharecroppers that pick cotton. Yeah. Tammy White, stand by your man, Tammy Wynette, yeah. picked cotton growing up. Mm. Right. These are all, if, if you look at modern rappers and their criminal pasts, they didn't really have criminal pasts the way we want to think they did. 
Mm. Me and Pascal were talking about this the other day. He was like, Run DMC went to college. They rapped about going mm. to John Jay University. Cool. Compared them to your your country counterparts, yeah. where uh, a lot of these guys were extremely uneducated, mm. extremely violent. They shot a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> they shot a lot of, and this is post fame shooting people. Mm-hmm. Damn, because they came, they literally came from these effed up environments mm-hmm. that yeah. they didn't want to go back to. But that's yeah. a story you don't really get get told because it f's up the narrative of the Negro made good out of the hood hip hop story. That's right. What I what I've heard a lot of when you bring up those things or just like the white poor or something. Well, I mean, two two main things. One is I think in the sort of uh, in the sort of professional anti racism world, they'll be like, yes, there's white poverty, but here's all the ways you need to acknowledge your white privilege. Still, they're still just like they'll they'll just like stop you, kind of just like shut the fuck up and acknowledge that you have it way better than everyone else. Or, or, you know, you're, or you're fired or whatever, you know, um, right. <laughs> or, or there's this other one that I think it, this is an interesting, I mean, I think this is worth exploring, but like the sort of, um, uh, a certain part of the left that will say, what is it? It's some, something like there's really no such thing as a white working class. Like I forgot if that's like a phenomenon wow. or whatever. Well, no, not, not oh, so geez. much. If you, if you think, well, if you Bizarre. think more like, I guess I'm trying to like, am I trying to steel man it to be nice or whatever? It's like, it's like, uh, if you just think of like, okay, black people were like, torn from the shores of Africa, indigenous people were enslaved, everybody that we call Latino that's like undocumented and an immigrant, you know, all this, all these things where it's like, well, where'd white people come from? There are these like, we are these like uh, settler, settler colonial uh, type, type people, right? That we're actually like always, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of how the narrative all white goes. people are from the aristocracy. <laughs> kind yeah, of. That- I mean, that's, I think, I think that's what they're trying to say. It's funny you say that because I think that's what they're trying to argue. And what you're pointing out, I think pretty, actually does show that like it's just that's just so not true but i think that's the options that are available to us i think in in kind of the prevailing discourse I mean, is what, what, that's do you what, think we nelson, what do you think willie nelson can get along with snoop dogg yeah they had they're both like corona there's <laughs> <laughs> new corona man i was the other day at grocery outlet i saw there's this big ass stack and snoop was on the top and i was like what the fuck he is, is a, he is a spokesperson now but, but i mean he's the best person he's gonna help corona bring out it anyway we're that's a time I'll, that's I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, this is a this is a, 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 a it's an anecdote but and i'll, and I'll shut up and because i know pascal wants to talk um i was on tour and we had a day off in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been to West Virginia. It's a beautiful country, but it's really white and it can be really, really scary for someone of my hue. And I have some friends there from years of touring and they were like, hey, uh, uh, I see that you're here. And we had a day off in Morgantown, which is the college town. And he goes, I'm, I'm out here in the mountains, kind of in the middle of nowhere, and I really need your help. If you could drive out here and pick me up, uh, I have a spare key. I have to get at my house. I'm, I'm working this job, and they got me staying up here in the mountains. Um, I'll pay you whatever money you want. Um, I'll buy you dinner, put gas in your car, like whatever you need. If you can help me out, I'd really appreciate it. It's a day off. I'm like, sure, it's fine. So we drive up in the middle of nowhere in, in the Appalachian Mountains up like state routes. Hella fucking scary. 
Mm-hmm. And he's staying in this motel. And it's a motel like I've never seen. It's not one big building. It's like a series of small little sheds, shacks mm-hmm. with like Ooh. screen doors. Sounds like <laughs> a horror started, movie. It, it very, very horror movie. Like horror movies yeah. start like this, right? Like, hey, yeah. what's in the woods, black guy? So uh-huh. um, I was touring with my ex at the time. It was just her and I. And, uh, and she is an Asian woman from, a small Asian woman from Canada. So she really has a very vague understanding of things like West Virginia right. and its past, mm-hmm. its history. But she is uncomfortable because it's starting to get like, ding, 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 ding. And as, as we get to the place, there's a family <laughs> sitting in front of their little motel shack. And you can see generations from grandma to grandkid. And they got tracks on the arms. Like this is some rough shit. Right, we're in the middle of it, and and my my buddy comes out and he gives us a great big hug in the parking lot and standing in front of this family and they're just staring at us like you know because they can, mm-hmm. and this is a, something that I'm used to seeing because where I grew up, I have a similar thing. Not white people, but there's a similar thing. A bunch of people sitting on the front porch, cats roll, roll up. They don't know, so we're gonna look at you like, well, who the hell are you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I understand this dynamic. And my buddy's talking to us and he said something about bears. And I was like, there's bears out here. And one of, and one yeah. of the, the, the redneck family yells out, we'll take you in the woods and show you a bear right now. Oh, fuck. And, uh, and I turned around and I was like, look, man, I'm from the, the big city and I'm scared of bears. I don't want to see a bear. I'm terrified of bears. And they laugh. And they said, the big city is where all the crime is. And and I then responded, I was like, and one of them had a camouflage shirt Mm -hmm. and one of those really big duck dynasty beards. And I said, look, (laughs) I said, for me, this is the scariest shit I'm going to see. A white dude in the camouflage shirt is the oh shit sign for black people. And they just, they all start cracking the fuck up. And they look at me and they go, oh no, man, we got your back. These backwood motels, you're safe here. I mean, some asshole may yell out a nigger from his truck, but fuck him. We got your back. Damn. It was an interesting interesting exchange. That's a a crazy-ass story. It is. (laughs) It was an interesting exchange. It is. Because, because first of all, we are from similar environments to the point where I know how to navigate that environment. Mm -hmm. Right. And even though we're not the same, the environment we're from is similar. Right. And almost and just we like can the, have a certain dialogue. And the yeah. opposite of that happened to me with an anecdote. I was walking down the street a long time ago when the black Muslims were more active. And this guy came to me and said, buy my newspaper. Your people enslaved my people in the 1800s. I said, wait a minute. My people were in steerage en route to a sweatshop to work 18 hours a day. Are you kidding? How many slave owners do you think were around? <laughs> you got it wrong. What'd he say? That's crazy. He was kind of stunned. He said, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, and yeah. I went on to say, you know, hey, what are you talking about? Working in a factory 12 hours a day for $12 a week? What are you talking about? Most white people who came to this country came as indentured servants. 
arrested for petty crimes so that they'd work it off and populate the, the colonies. Are we kidding? What are you talking mm. about? He had no idea. Mm. I think that what this demonstrates is that the way in which, particularly in the post-movement era that we're talking about, we have a theme on our show we call it the 50-year counter-revolution. And the mm -hmm. theme of the 50-year the counter-revolution is that basically all of the politics and social and political discourse in the 50 years since the assassination, 50-plus years since the assassination of Martin Luther King, the post-civil rights era, has been a counter-revolution against the rise of the new left and the New Deal, so, uh, new Deal civil yeah. rights co coalition. And that all of this kind of reactionary politics, even the kind of race-first, race-reductionist politics, is really about trying to neutralize the capacity to address politics rooted in challenging the institutions that are deemed by the ruling class to be necessary to keep the American empire going. Right. And one of those main things is capitalism, you quite bet. frankly. And, and what, what has happened is that cynical voices that are on both sides of the table, are, are focused on trying to make it seem like the capacity of blacks and whites coming together to challenge capitalism on, on a class or, or, put, or an economic-based paradigm is impossible. It's never worked. <laughs> White people have always kind of abandoned class, I mean, class-based class, class -based politics. So what you will find often from, you know, particularly black elites, college-educated blacks, is they will say that those working-class whites will always abandon you. You can't trust you. And mm -hmm. I always say to them, you know, it's really funny. You talk about how coalitions with whites don't work because they always stab uh, the, the blacks in the, in the back. When we have a whole history for over 100 years of black elites doing the same thing of right. stabbing poor and working class black people in the back out of the name of seeming like they are the ventriloquists of the suffering of those people. Yeah, you don't demand that we should check ourselves from believing that black people are some kind of racial kinship, one force altogether. Yeah. Because again, the, the notion of actually having two classes of people coming together to challenge capital has people on both sides of the aisle so concerned because their material politics are rooted in being able to leverage the suffering of these classes. And I want to get back to something that Max was talking about, interracial intergenerational trauma. Right. I actually kind of reject that notion and I'm not a fan of it because what you're telling me, what you're, what you're telling me is that a black person who summons on Martha's Vineyard, and there are many, who is an executive in a bank or has a job at a major Wall Street law firm, and there are some who do that as well, mm -hmm. has some kind of biologically tra trajectory-type trauma from the yeah. fact that six or seven generations ago, he had an ancestor who worked on a plantation. Whenever I hear certain things like that, and you know, people promote them, particularly black folk promote them, I mm. say, well, let's take that to its logical extension and say, well, what if uh, the ruling class or, you know, let's say white employers said, well, listen, since you have this intergenerational trauma and you have this kind of like biological defect because your ancestors were slaves, I don't think that we can necessarily hire you or buy or give you housing or anything else because you actually have this kind of long lasting kind of like biological flaw that makes you seep, pop up in the workspace yeah. and make it difficult for us to be able to necessarily deal with you. Oh, no so one everyone has that. I mean, it, most 
let's just look at the Constitution. 6% of the people could vote. They had to have property. They had to be white. They had to be male. And they had to have property. Yeah, what are we exactly. talking about? Aren't they traumatized? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the thing is, that's another thing as well. So why is it exactly that blackness is something that, quote unquote, has a, the particular ability to to convey this intergenerational trauma, but right. no one else does? Is there Hispanic intergenerational trauma? Is there Native American inter, intergenerational trauma? I don't. Yeah, is I, there I, Jewish from the Holocaust? Yeah, exactly. I don't. Well, yeah. I don't particularly yeah. find it an effective way to deal with the problems that people are suffering in, in, in the societies in the West by mm. focusing on leveraging mm. the actual uh, things that people who are past are deal have dealt with to try to get those spoils today. I think that the best way to address those is to talk about what are people going in through today and how do we remedy those problems and right. all those problems rooted in the political economy and the way in which capitalism is increasing their suffering in the society. And can we get a material so a solution to those problems? And yeah. can we do it together well, where we have the power? Well, this kind of mm -hmm. this leads to, in my mind, one of those questions that I sent you guys, because I'm thinking, um, you know, I was I was like, really, it, I was I was just getting tingles. The one the one you guys just did with with Toya Reed and uh, Bertrand uh, Cooper, I think is his name. And yeah. I was just like and then Marcus from left left for Link Fest. I was just like, <laughs> you guys just got, I was just like, this is just an all star just as like, a, am just a fan of basically all you guys is like, the things you guys say and it like one of the things when you guys dipped into the you know, class reductionism to all these other things is like one thing that I think, you know, you, know, you uh, Pascal, and um, and I think Torre did make very clear, I think maybe Torre a little bit, bit more, but like how it's like, there's, we're not, whenever we are, and I guess, I guess this includes probably me and Harriet, I think it's like, whenever we are talking about these like class first or class material things, we're not like denying something like, like racism, sexism, whatever, all the things um, they, and, and, and I remember like Tori saying too, like, but then they need remedy. Um, and then it moved back onto the class piece, but this is where I, it's like, I almost want to stop it to again, perhaps steel man, the, uh, the identity world and the, <laughs> and the profession that we are, that I am in where I have to like, I have fucking colleagues that are like, they're using all this language all the time now, like, like from like Instagram, whatever, normal people to like mental health professionals. And I'm sitting there like, let's read Marx, you know, but somebody's going to be like, you're a fucking Bernie bro or something. Right. Where, so anyway, the remedies, I think, you know, there's all these, there's tra these trainings, these diversity trainings, implicit bias workshops, all these things. You know, some people would say, well, let's just, none of that shit works. Just like stop, you know, it's just, it's a waste of time. Um, it's just making, these diversity trainer like companies rich or whatever right that's one that's one view i think i'm a bit on that side but there's also a question i think from a practical perspective right whether we're going to use say dsa as a vehicle or something maybe better if we think that it's just too kind of shit lived out at this point or whatever like if if we if we're like okay if we need this like multiracial multicultural everybody's on board with class material politics yada yada there's also the question, like, how do we work together, you know? And, like, from what I've heard is, you know, this term microaggression, I do think it's overused, but, like, there's shit where sometimes I could imagine, I don't know about for you, you know, you, Pascal, and and, uh, and Jason, like, speaking for all black people, obviously, but, like, if you're in a room, if you're in these things, and then, like, somebody does some shit, if there's some shit that's just like, wow, that's, like, it's just a hurtful thing, like, that there's a, there what people call the implicit bias thing, right? Like the, the white lady you know, pulls her purse away when the black, black guy walks in the room or men 
doing this thing of like talking over women every fucking time they're trying to talk, whatever. Right? These things that are like kind of subtle, but I could totally see add up. And then interpersonally, it's like, I just don't want to work with this person, you know? And that, because the sort of story we're being told right now is like, well, yeah, that's systemic racism, that's systemic this, that's systemic that. And so the remedy that it's implied in that way is like implicit bias trainings and everything. And I would, I would kind of and assume think, all of us here all are. Yeah, go ahead. Does all that stuff look? And let's take it back to what you guys do in therapy. And when I'm in the shelter, they had uh, a group. I can't remember the name of the group. I think it was a nonprofit group as well that wasn't associated with the nonprofit that was running the place that dealt with a handful, a very small handful of some of the people there. Because like I said, you had to be severely mentally ill if you weren't um, uh, 65 with health problems. And also homeless. So also add that. And you have to answer about 100 questions or 170 questions. I forget how many it is totally to be qualified as homeless. Let's also not forget that. So one thing I noticed, all the quote unquote mental health professionals, they were all very young and generally pretty white. Mm-hmm. And if they weren't, they definitely weren't from the environment of the people that they were talking to. Mm -hmm. so there's a disconnect right there so at that point what kind of implicit bias training what kind of racial training are you going to do um to really help you understand like really understand uh the plight of the people it's just going to be your sympathy um and it's like Bertram Cooper talks about well, who who gets to write f- the poor black experience. It's never poor black people that are writing the story of this experience. So who is helping these unhoused people that are suffering years of trauma? It's never the people that have been where they've been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So instead of having an industry that, you know, is a very lucrative industry at this point. If right. you guys started going off and doing conferences on how to be better white people and not question systems, you'd make a lot more money, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm thinking about it. I want to, <laughs> yes. there's some nice mansions in here in Santa Barbara. I'm looking at you know, one of the most beautiful parts of the state we're in right now. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to acknowledge Chumash land and then do the first <laughs> training and get the mansion. Robin D'Angelo starts know. every speaking engagement off with a land acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And her book, in my, this is just my opinion, I skimmed over it. I didn't read the whole thing. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. But it just felt like white, a white lady telling other white people how to be a better white person. For, for her own pockets, kind of. Just, well, just right. hey, be a better white person. I'm sure she felt good when she yeah. wrote it. I'm yeah. sure, I, I believe in my soul she felt good when she wrote it. Not just for financial reasons. I don't think she's a comic book villain. Mm-hmm. she comes from a world where people say crazy shit like that. But even like, even like, let's say, and as an example, right? Like there's that trope of just like the white person that's like, can I touch your hair and shit like that? Right. And there's like yeah. 5,000 things like that. Right. That like, mm-hmm. that there is like a probably maybe not a hundred percent consensus. All black people are like, yeah, that shit sucks. But like a lot of fucking black people are like, I hate when they do that shit, right? Like, there's a lot of things. Just like you'll get women in a room and they'll be like, I hate when men do the thing, right? Or mm-hmm. whatever. We can keep going down the list. So it's like, how do we... Because I do think there is a there is something to that at the very least, like from maybe from a class organizing perspective, right? Like, if we want to build really strong 
I want to say inclusive, but it's like, I almost feel like I can't even say the word anymore, but like if you actually want to build the kind of movement we want, and then there's people like, can I touch your hair and shit? Right. Or, or just these this, like creepy look, men, you know what I mean? So how to like, how easy it is yeah. to be like, don't do that. I, yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a creepy man. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here but and lie and say, I don't like enjoying the female form. And sometimes I get caught doing it and I feel like shit. And sometimes I get called out doing it and it makes mm. me conscious of the fact that I'm doing it. Mm. I go to the gym every morning here in Arroyo Grande. I'm going to say it the right way. We're not going to anglicize it like people <laughs> do out here. And I see the fear in women's eyes as they walk back and forth in the gym to pick up equipment or work on different machines because I see all the men look. It's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And yeah. watching that makes me acknowledge the fact that, oh, that's, that's pretty gross. Mm-hmm. And I've yeah. been that guy. Mm. You, I'm well, I found as a woman, yeah. if, I, if someone in my experience, and of course there's situations where I wouldn't do this. When, I've, when I was young and I walked by, I remember this firefighter whistled and I said, do you realize that insults me? And he said, no, I thought it was a compliment. And we had a nice talk Mm -hmm. because sometimes I've said that a couple of times, like some guys said, you have nice legs. And I said, would you like me to compliment your balls? (laughs) No, actually. And, you know, how does this feel? And sometimes people are just into the cultural norm. They really don't know what they're doing. And they need you compliment people's balls. <laughs> be yeah. really funny. They Walk need down the street. You know, they need a little <laughs> yeah. bit of um, reasonable suggestion, not based on a premise that they're evil, but that they're misinformed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that works well. It, yeah. You know, people are into the cultural norms that they're in. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to build an alliance with people unless you give them the benefit of the doubt. And well, right. tell let, them. Me ask, let me ask this question to to <clears> our, <throat> our hosts and even and even Maya. I'll ask this question to our, to our hosts, but Pascal, he has heard me tell this story. I lived in a music rehearsal and recording studio in Oakland, California, mm-hmm. and there was a kid. Uh, these young kids that were coming by and they were a good like rock band like an old school what you'd call a classic rock band which you don't hear out of Mm. 20 somethings anymore and one of the kids had started falling down a rabbit hole of Jordan Peterson and Alex Jones Mm -hmm. and uh, whenever I was at the front counter uh, working there the kid always felt the need to try to talk to me about something he had learned from Jordan Peterson or Alex Jones. And I would then tell him my opinion of it and he would appreciate it and he would go on. Mm. And he started buying InfoWars shit. Like he had a hat, Mm -hmm. he had a shirt or some shit. Nice. And, but he would still keep coming to me and wanting me to challenge what he's hearing from these guys. Mm-hmm. And so the kids band played a show at a very famous place in Berkeley, California called the Gilman. The Gilman is a mm-hmm. independently run venue that has been the launch pad to careers of bands like Rancid, Green Day, 
uh, insert Bay Area punk band here. They yeah. started at the Gilman. And the Gilman has rules. Back in the day, they would have to read your song lyrics because there's no racism, no homophobia, mm-hmm. no sexism. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't even have uh, oh. sponsorships. So they couldn't have major label bands come in because if you had a corporate sponsorship, they wouldn't have you. So that's the vibe of this place, even now, 30, 40 years later. But as the, the, the new younger generation comes in, there's a little less of a solidarity and there's more identity politics. Mm. Mm. Still a cool place to go. It's a little different than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, again, still a cool place to go. Still good people. Still good, good message, I think, overall, what they're trying to do. What they're doing. I'm trying to they're doing it. But this kid goes there and he's wearing a shirt. It might have even been a Proud Boy shirt. And again, this is a kid that's like 21, 22 years old. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't understand fully right. what message. he's doing. He doesn't, he doesn't get right. the message at all. Right. Had he had seen me before that show, I would have told him, hey, man, don't wear that shirt there. Just we'll talk about it later. Don't wear the shirt there. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't have wore it and we would have had a conversation about it later. And, and he probably would have laughed about it and went on with his life. The kid wears the shirt there. They would go to load in at the venue and the venue goes, you either take that shirt off or you guys get the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. And the kid goes, no, I'm not going to take the shirt off. And the, the thing about his band is they didn't support this stuff at all. And they didn't even really have that much because they didn't watch Jordan Peterson. So they had no idea what the fuck the shirt was. Yeah. And they were kind of weirded out by it. So they're telling wow. him, just fucking take your shirt off. Now there's a standoff about his personal freedom, which is one of the things that people like Jordan Peterson and all those people talk about. And the the, the libs are going to take it from you. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fascists. So he's not going to stand down. They tell the guys, get the fuck out of here. You can't play. Mm-hmm. It was a big show for them. That place does fill up. So they don't play the show at the Gilman. The next day, one of the people posts the guy's name and where he works on social mm-hmm. media and mm-hmm. say, let's get this Nazi fired. Mm-hmm. That kid, within a few weeks, was living in his car across the street from the studio in the homeless encampment mm-hmm. because he had lost his job. Now that's a radicalizing experience for him on the other side. Yes. Right. I would go full Nazi in a minute if that, you know what I mean? Right. It's right? hard. Yeah. Cause you're like, who's going to catch me now that I've fallen, who's going to catch me. And then the like actual Nazi type dudes are like, Hey, we've, we've been through that too. These people, you know, we know, we know what they're like. Join and us. There was a, there was a right. bit of a Nazi contingent in the, in the homeless camp that was across the street. It was broken oh. up. But because that, the benefit that of the doubt that I, you know, that no one is better than anyone else and that we're in this together would have meant an explanation. Do you realize what that says? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like some kind of conversation. Yeah. Yes. Because yeah, that's another person. Yeah. And like, you hey, know, man, can't I, do that. I'm a bourgeois yeah. whim, woman in many ways. But when I worked with addicted, you know, homeless drug addicts, I got along very well. And my supervisor said, why do you get along well? And I said, why I don't get along very well with some other people, because I know they're not better than me. And I know I'm no better than these guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we get along. 
We're people. Well, let me, okay, here, let me ask you, unless Pascal, cause you've been, you've been kind of, I don't know if you have something to say, you've been quiet for a while, but I have a question that's a little bit, it's one of the ones that we wrote to you guys that it's, it's, I think a little bit more for you, but I guess for all of us, maybe if I could, I could just do that. Um, so it's all right, I'll do it. We're, okay. <laughs> it's like, man, I just killed the room. Um, so it's this, so, so psychologized, I really like this word, um, that, that like what you think Pascal and then anyone else, like why so much like activist discourse and culture on the left became so psychologized, like these, these terms like lived experience, microaggressions, intergenerational trauma, right? Cause like that didn't, I'm assuming Harriet from your time, when you were in the like, I don't know, we had left, none of that. 60s, 70s, none of those terms were used. Nope. I'm sure there were like maybe some things that were like, what, what's the, like thrashing or what was her name? Um, a feminist, uh, it is kind of what we would call canceling or call it. I'm sure there were like yeah, interpersonal there were, things there that were, were going on, right? Yes, and there were some people who were biased against half the population that had a dick. Right. Yeah, but but like but like now there's like this whole vernacular, and you're also like kind of supposed to know it. Like it's almost there's an assumption like you have to know if someone's like, oh well, that's you committed a microaggression. Like you're actually sort of to be in in the club of the left, you actually have to know the terms. You have to like agree with it. It's like a valid concept. You have to like, kind of, it's like, it's kind of nuts. And like, mm. and it's, again, I'm not like a hundred percent shitting on the whole thing and saying like, all of this is totally stupid and useless, but I, I'm curious a with like your analysis, but your, your analysis, Pascal, just because from what I've heard you, the way you talk about, right, that 50 year, uh, counter revolution and all of that, like all the time and your politically political economy analysis, like where, uh, how did this evolve? This like very psychologized, because these are all psychology concepts, right? These aren't, these aren't political concepts, but then they've mm. been made to seem strictly and purely and strongly political, but there's psych- there are things going on inside people's sort of heads and hearts. And then that, that becomes the sort of the starting point of the politics, I think in a large, where do you think this came from? I think this comes from the way in which psychology becomes a kind of go-to way to address problems of people's lives starting in the 80s. Mm-hmm. There's a really good book by a woman named Janice Peck who talks about Oprah, Win- Oprah Winfrey and the neoliberal age. I forgot the actual de- title of the book, but she talks mm-hmm. about how one of the values of Oprah Winfrey to kind of American society from the top down is that she transfers the problems of people from actually being rooted in political economy and systems and structures <laughs> and roots it in themselves and right. their the fact that they need to be somehow therapized into a kind of way to deal with their problems because the defect is with them. And I think that once we relegate the problems of society to psychotherapy or, or psychiatric analysis in that way, it mm-hmm. roots the problem in the d- individual divorced right. from the actual systemic structures that address it. And I also think it's part of the move that combines with postmodernism as well, starting mm-hmm. with in the 80s to kind of really kind of effectively move away challenges to capital and the ruling class and start rooting the problems into individual personalized experiences and defects and problems of people without mm-hmm. looking at systems. But then you have this, another thing that happens now today is that there's the, the term systems, like in the same discourse, I'm hearing terms like systems and structures and stuff be used a lot. And in, in, I guess in my view that it's still within the same individualistic and psychologized framework, but it's like thrown in. Does that make sense? Like, do you guys come across that where it's like, blah, 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 but it's systems, it's systemic racism or something, but then it actually still goes back to like a sort of, uh, you know, a non-class analysis and a sort of psychologized I don't know. I don't know if I'm making that up, but I just, it's something that I've, I've come across a lot where these, the same, the terms that are almost getting to the problem 
being used, but without the actual analysis. Does hmm. that make sense? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the problem with the whole using of the system is that they are actually not talking about the system that project that, that generates system. all of them, which right. is capitalism. Right. Exactly, right. they're not talking about capitalism. They're talking about it in a kind of amorphous kind of overall way. And well, they'll say, they'll the say system the system replaced the man. The system the, replaced the term the man. Uh, yeah. Well, there'll be like the system of white supremacy, right? Like so all these systems oppressing us, such as white supremacy, such as patriarchy, such and as they're not looking at economic systems, at political yeah. economy, because the trend, which we're in our very small way trying to combat, combat, and it's not just in your head, is to try to prevent a mass movement in the United States, because the mass of people are suffering, no matter what their color, or what their race or what their religion, or what their sex. They're suffering, and they're dispossessed, and they have no future, and their dream is dead, and they don't want that out, that the declining empire is screwing them all. And so we need to revive that. So you say yeah. systemic racism instead of the man, right? Yeah. Charlie, whatever, whatever you want to throw in there. Mm-hmm. To me, to me, that's just my opinion. That's what it comes off to me. Would you agree, Pascal? Or you don't agree? No, I, I, I definitely think it kind of it makes it makes it into some kind of thing that that exists in the air, divorced from the overall uh, structural mechanisms that keep the system working. It's like the system of white supremacy, it, and it also right. makes it something that's mystified that can't be challenged. Mm-hmm. It seems it also creates a grandiose. It's like you could be talking about something interpersonal, or um, or even I guess like mass incarceration, right? To say instead of saying. Like, cause you're now, when I, whenever I hear you guys talk about like this reserve army of labor, et cetera, et cetera, analysis, or, you know, the shock absorbers, I know when like Rick Wolf came on, like that's so different than say Michelle Alexander. I mean, I, I like, I think that work is super important too, it like is. the, the, all, all of, and then 13th and everything. Um, but like there isn't that narrative is not present when they talk about it. They're not talking about like what function in the system it serves. No. Right. Not. Like, like why is there a, this massive racialized mass incarceration problem problem now i mean sort of sort of always was but like crazy crazy out of out of control now it's like something like i feel like it's more palatable from whether it's like you're watching msnbc or like the view or like listening to i don't know you know something like that they'll say like well it's oh well this is clearly white supremacy it's like white supremacy has done this right well it is a reassertion of slave labor yeah in a new form however that also has to be discussed with the prison industrial complex and how very profitable that is. You know, but class is the most repressed discourse in the United States. And ever since the CIA initiative in the early 70s is to replace class analysis, not to enhance it, but to replace class analysis with racial and sexual analysis. And, and to it's, divert it's the movement. Yep, it's it is. It's tea. worked too well. Michelle Alexander's book, where I look at it as a great intro drug to kind of understand mm. incarceration on a, yeah. on a commercial level and not on an interpersonal level. Mm-hmm. And hopefully Michelle Alexander's book leads you to James Foreman Jr.'s book, Locking Up Our Own. Oh, which does challenge structures and racial notions that you get out of Michelle Alexander's book, which pretty much draws a line between slavery 
and where we are today. And the 13th documentary doesn't even try to blur that line. It just says there's slavery and mass incarceration. And this is the connection. And the connection goes back to being the sinister nature of a white majority. And that's why a lot of people have problems with the 13th documentary. And there's definitely a lot of people in academia that have issues with Michelle Alexander, who does not say that that's her definitive work and actually has issues with the book at this point. Because there's, there's different directions that she even wants to go when looking at um, the idea of mass incarceration, especially post Foreman's book, which I think is, is an essential read mm. um, to truly understand um, how we got to where we are opposed to Alexander's book. Another very good book. Is, another very good book is Loic Wakant's Punishing the Poor, which he which roots actual mass incarceration in an economic reaction onto the deindustrialization and failing of capitalism, and realizes that you know the the uh, the notion of the notion of the racialized nature of mass incarceration obviously proliferates in the age of deindustrialization. But if you one thing that you notice is a really good article that was in the Callus that highlights this, the disparity between black and white uh, mass incarceration stays relatively flat throughout the 20th century to today. But what happens is that it increases when we talk about a lack of education. In other words, the, it's not even so much just a disparity in terms of race, but it's a disparity is is increased when you talk about the class of blacks. So, in other words, when we talk about black people who don't have a, a college, uh, a high school diploma, those disparities proliferate. But the but the disparity between uh, blacks who have some level of college and whites decreases. So what you're seeing is that the actual increase of mass incarceration is not so much a quote-unquote black-wide phenomenon as a more as more of a black, poor, undereducated, and under-economically uh, empowered phenomenon. So those nuances aren't things that are considered when we simply racialize. Again, this is part of the problem of racializing problems that are disproportionately affected but to poor and working class black people because it mitigates the fact that there are 10% of black Americans at the top who own 75% of black wealth. The class disparities amongst black people are actually as bad, if not worse, than they are amongst white people. But we wouldn't know that because, again, we're trying to make it seem like because black people have overall so less, so less, so much less wealth that. This, all black people are poor, which is actually not true. There's a significant black upper middle class as well. Yes, they don't have the same amount as wealth of the black as the white top 10%. But the thing is, though, when the top 10% of whites own 75% of white wealth, that means there's a lot of white folk who have nothing as well. So when we're talking about these disparities, economic and otherwise, simply racializing these things really obfuscates from the fact that there are people across the board that are suffering. The precarity is getting worse. And these ethnic and racial silos are also intentionally being proliferated to stop people from coming together and challenging the system. I mean, also we have to keep in mind when people like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg are in your, <laughs> in your racialized group of who controls the wealth, it definitely is going to skew those numbers off quite a bit. 
Um, well, so, all right, if we're going to kind of, we're moving toward a close out. Um, what do we do? Closing out Rochambeau. Who's up? <laughs> um, thank, first of all, well, thank you for, for having us. This was a, a very enjoyable conversation. Um, uh, I do, I do like, um, kind of bringing up my, my time in uh, working with the unhoused and, and dealing with, uh, what people want to call severely mentally ill because mm-hmm. the treatment there also is one of those things that, that shapes the way <clears throat> I, I view people that work in the field, the field in general, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. to, to expand on that conversation and, and really show, uh, you know, like capitalism's effect on, on the way we look at that, especially in the, in the era of defund the police and we just need more uh, mental health professionals, you know, seeing it at a very low level, it, it showed me that, well, people are going to treat it like they treat everything else. You know, you're not, you're not going to get their best. And I think the idea, people think that, you know, crazy qualified highly skilled psychologists are going to come out and talk people down <laughs> from having episodes. And it's, it's, it's not that. That to me is such a, that's a whole episode kind of conversation to me too, because I do think that's, that's been a, a troubling trend, I think, in this assumption of like, Oh, we just replace cops with, with social workers and like not understanding the, the degree, like, this maybe we could even do this as a whole thing and just kind of interviewing yeah. you about that or something, and then maybe even having just just I think a broader discussion about homelessness, unhoused, whatever. Sure. And like because all the things around that too, because sometimes it's like oh let's throw mental health services at it, but it's like you need like a supportive housing system. Yeah. With with social workers, with caseworkers. I mean, you actually need like so many things, and then like psychiatrists. And, and you also need you, basic respect for those pe- for people as people, that's whether homeless one. or not. That's number one. And anyway, I one. should go because somebody's been trying to call okay. me too much. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Okay. okay, okay goodbye. It's well. <laughs> Wait, I muted her. Well, how is it? You just Thanos her. You just Thanos Harriet. <laughs> I'm not trying to silence a woman. I mean, guys, come well, on! Don't Thanos her. You did even more than silence her. That's beyond you. <laughs> Snapped her off the damn screen. Keep so, all of this. Don't you edit a goddamn thing. <laughs> Liam, I don't know you from Adam, but if you edit this shit out, you Liam. are doing a disservice to your listeners. Yeah, Liam, you got to like, because we got to get the abuse on uh, on tape of this, of uh, Thanos. Max, what is this Thanos yeah, thing? Thanos, is that Max the... snapped Harriet being Thanos <laughs> Right off the damn screen. I, I was... I was in my goddamn defense. I was when I muted her the first time. I was just trying to, you know, because there's that ruffly sound of like her, and I was like, "Oh, there's a mute button, and I can just hit that for like five seconds, and then it wouldn't unclick." So you know, but but they're probably going to come after me. So whatever. There's worse um, things that can happen. That's that's true. That's true. Um, okay, so those two books, uh, we're going to put those in the show notes. You get. Oh, we didn't actually ask you guys in the beginning. Um, what the hell is your podcast? Why did you start it? Why should people listen to it? What do you guys talk about on your podcast? You know, this is for the listeners that have question. not heard you before. This yeah. is a Pascal question because he says it so eloquently. Okay. Well, 
the podcast is This Is Revolution Podcast, which you can find live stream on YouTube on Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Thursday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, mm-hmm. and Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time at noon. You can also find it on your relevant podcast applications, Apple Podcaster, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. The purpose of our show is to basically uh, introduce or reintroduce audiences to the notion that there are left politics and has been a history of left politics not not only in black communities going back, you know, over a century, but that political economy and being that as the root of the cause of the problems of multiple diverse communities in this country is something that needs to be addressed. And we're trying to basically find a way to maintain a conversation about global affairs, popular culture, and all types of things that American society deals with without without uh, subscribing to the normal kind of boring ways in which the left discusses these issues and realizing that our goal is to really escape the cloud of capitalist realism that has us believing that this is the only option we have. So uh, Jason and I have been working together now for pretty much about nine months going on a year. Mm. And, you know, we uh, I think we, we've tried to put out a good quality of content of mm-hmm. guests who discuss these issues in a way in which um, I think it's not only interesting, it's captivated a lot of people's attention, and hopefully we're expanding our audience and we, you know, mm-hmm. participating in a podcast like yours, I think will help us achieve that goal as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Jason, I hope you think I did justice to the, the vision that you uh, you had when you started wow. and introduced me as well. Look, brother, that's why I said that's a pass. <laughs> Who has a Sorry, that's the, my first ever time trying that. I'm trying to be like you, Jason, add these things in. <laughs> I purposely didn't use the soundboard because I, I know you have, you have that you have Wait, like intro I'm music. I'm so sorry. I don't know why it's still. And now it, it, see, see, dude, see what happens when you're not a professional. Yeah. No, and no. more, you know, we're going to have to hire you. Oh shit. You have it just right there. <laughs> it's with me at all times, man. Oh my God. <laughs> Jason loves the soundboard. Even when I, I love it too. To you just throw those little things in and during you guys' thing. And it's always so like, it just adds a little, you know, spice to it or something. Pa- Pascal coming on the show was a godsend for me. Um, he also helped me uh, not lose my mind when I had to take a little bit of a break. Um, and he's definitely supporting me in the in the crazy situation I'm in right now. Um, I learn so much from. Pascal Robert. Mm. We are not Torrey Reed. Oh, well, he like introduced you two together Mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, he thought we'd make a good combination because I had been talking about starting my own podcast, but I was not really technically adept at all of how to get it done. I was debating, do I, should I do a live stream? Should it be just audio? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Torrey basically said, listen, man, I have a guy who has his own podcast. You should talk to him. Maybe you guys can come together. And he suggested that in December of, of last year, we did our first uh, episode together and it just moved on from there. And we've uh, been working since then. Cool. Okay. So this is Revolution Podcast. Well, obviously, okay. So we've said it enough times. Hopefully people will check it out. We'll put it in the show notes and everything. Um, I mean, it's one of my favorites right now. Like I became a patron of yours. Um, oh, and yeah, I you just get all I the after hours are, bonus stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And the new uh, movie I'm nights. Glad, I'm there. glad you're enjoying the show, Max. And you know, and I'm, I'm, thank you for being a patron and supporting our work. Yeah, of course. And you know, any of our patrons who want to jump ship and abandon us for uh, for 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 this is revolution, you know, um, it's reparations. Um, you know, I wish I I, I didn't. Sorry, know. I'm like I just no, I don't no, even know look, you guys like this to make no, these you jokes. No, you can you can make that whatever. joke. That it, it, yeah. look joke if it's funny. Shut up if it's not. That's a, that's a, what I'm right. saying. Okay. Um, right. I'm around so many old white academics that at a certain point I'm like, look, I'm going to say outlandish shit and I don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were teasing yeah. Michael Albert last night. Um, I feel like Patreon at this point is com- becoming like uh, subscription services for, for streaming. Like I can't just have Amazon. I have to have Shutter and documentary channel and all this other stuff. So mm-hmm. I refuse to believe that there's a person that's like, nope, I'm only giving $3 to one person. Mm. You know, there's, this is just how we consume uh, content at this point, because let's be honest, there's no true left uh, TV station that I know of, unless someone knows of one or, or media station that mm. is going to uh, enable us to, to do this at the level that we do it on without mm-hmm. the support of uh, of of listeners so well we are maybe as a a, a, a sort of also closing thing we are uh, we'll more officially announce this uh, soonish but we're trying to expand our podcast to include more hosts soon to mm-hmm. um to and and other sort of therapists social worker mental health professionals i think we're going to try to do the you know sort of prioritize poc et cetera kind of thing. Just, so we don't have a cast of like a, a shit ton of sort of left white therapists. Um, and hopefully not a stupid way, but, but to just expand the conversation, I, I think these conversations, when you have more in the room, it's like more fun. you like, things bounce around more and stuff. Um, I think that's cool. And then some of us can take breaks and be like, I'm going to take a week or two off and then so-and-so can come in and out. So, and if you guys know of anybody actually, right. Of, of people that are like sort of, I think the foundation is, I guess you could say left in air quotes, uh, but like, I don't know, Marx, Marxy, Marxist E. I do, I do know someone, uh, she was actually a guest on the show, but she was a little shy. I mean, the show went for, I think two and a half or three hours. Um, and this is before I was like really cut. I think I, we cut it for a patron thing, but not at the, at the hard hour, like we do now with Pascal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an audio only thing. It's definitely up on the patron side. Um, but it was, I think it's like confessions of a, of a drug counselor and it's her. I may have seen that one. Yeah. You should, you should listen to that. She's, she takes like deep freaking dives into her look at the industry. She's around my age. Mm -hmm. Um, and she's a, a a quote unquote person of, of colored, um, Mm -hmm. uh, it's an Asian woman. Um, but, uh. It, that that was a great episode. I've been trying to get her back on, um, to to kind of do a part two because she's been out of the industry for some time. But mm-hmm. you know, it's it's one of those industries that just stays with you. Yeah, you know, she had a oh, line, yeah she had a line in there. She said, "You hate." I, I forget if this was on air or not. She goes, "She goes." I hate the fact that I'm looking at someone and I'm trying to remember. Are you the person that? Uh, was raped by your uncle or your yeah. dad. I can't remember. Yeah. 
Yeah, we encounter all kinds of shit like that. Well, especially in community mental health, which is a whole other thing. But like, because I'm doing private practice now, which is a little a little cushier. Um, I think Harriet's been doing that for longer, and like, that's part of the pipeline. This is whole, sorry, I'm gonna just a quick tangent thing. Is like they they start you in school, they put you into a job where you don't get paid for a year, then they put you into working in uh, clinics where they pay you nearly nothing. Uh, to work with people that are like in the worst possible apps, like at the bottom of like, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're getting evicted while some, you know, there's a court case coming up and, and then this thing burnt down and then the kids are taken away. And that's, I mean, this is how like the mental health industry works. And then they throw you into that for a couple of years. Then you get your hours to get your license or whatever. And then you're like, Oh, thank God, I'm going to go charge $5,000 an hour to work with rich people. And I just work like three hours a week. And then you're just like, then you abandon everyone. And then the only people that are like really helping the people at the bottom in this psychologized mode, right? Where we're like, that's how you help people is you give them therapy and stuff mm-hmm. instead of like, let's raise minimum wage and, te- you know, 98% t- corporate tax rate or whatever we need. You just go like, oh, you just throw these like stu- these, these students who were like, I want to help. And they went to school for psychology and then you just throw them into these clinics where they're just like, I have no idea how to help people. Like none of the training you gave me can help me not get the uncle to rape the person or get the person off the street or whatever. You know what I mean? Like the, ther- the actual therapy yep. is like not going to do it. And not to, not to say it's like not helpful. Obviously it's helpful. I wouldn't have gotten it. You know, everybody that's benefited from therapy knows like, wow, that like changed my life or whatever. But then you look at all these structural things. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's the industry in a nutshell. And it's, it's and, and, and that's, and that's my big beef about people that say things like, oh, we can just will you and and we talk about that on the on the episode so please this is revolution I'll check podcast. it out this episode you can find online yes. called confessions of a drug counselor <laughs> and okay. all right and she definitely she definitely talks about um basically what she thinks is going to happen is that you're just going to have counselors be police and there's already situations where counselors act as police right right and then the only difference i guess at some point maybe you have to give them guns or tasers or something. That'll you know? be the situation once someone gets stabbed or shot. Right. And then everybody, that'll be that weird, confusing thing. It's kind of like with Adam Curtis, when he talks about like in Egypt after the Arab spring, where all, all of a sudden everybody's like military police help us because you know, it was like, help us because the bad guys took power. Cause we didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I don't know if that, if that analogy makes sense, but it's suddenly like, no. Oh, we want to defund the police. We want to abolish the state. We want to blah, 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 blah. Like all this sort of like, I think sometimes not, not super mature, maybe sort of anarchist-ish politics, where it's like, oh wait, we didn't really think out a plan of how to redesign the society in the way we wanted, and then in that vacuum of power, something way worse happens. You know. Anyway, that's how I see it, and I think I don't know. Is your take on that, Pascal, somewhat similar? You know, it's 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 a uh, it's a tough it's a tough nut to crack. You know, I've mm-hmm. never really really. Uh, been able to figure out exactly how these dynamics really, really cross each other over in terms of these systems. But I, you know, I, I think that the whole kind of relegating to the initial point of relegating policing power to mental health or, or a, a therapist, I don't understand how people believe that that's going to be a solution to the problem because you're just giving the, who has the monopoly on violence becomes a question for mm-hmm. me and who can dispatch it. Mm-hmm. And are you just transferring that over to someone who's supposed to be the therapist? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. kind of how I see it. And That's, so if, yeah, if you're down yeah. to do a show about that, uh, I'm definitely down to come back and I can, uh, I can definitely see if, uh, yeah. my friend, 
uh, is is down to come back as well. That would be really dope. I mean, because that's I think that's the crux of our and also with defund the police. We actually have never even done an episode on that. I mean, despite it being very kind of fever pitch, um, I think both of us like kind of don't know. It's not like we don't know what to say about it, but I do think there's like a lot of nuance that's needed in that conversation. Tell but um, Tell but like, but especially <laughs> in this in this regard, because it's like at that actual point of crisis or crime or violence or whatever you want to call it, like what do we actually envision as like the way that should work? And I don't think in most conversations there's any, like I don't actually take seriously most of the conversations around it in in most cases, most of the time, because it's like, I'm like, wait, what about this though? What about that? And then like, we don't have answers for that, you know? So anyway, it's not like I'm against the whole abolition thing or whatever. I think it's, it's like, yes, let's keep, you know, keep having that conversation. But anyway, (laughs) Oh, all right, get out of here. Um, <laughs> well, thank it you. It was so it was so cool to have you get. It was so cool to have you guys on. You get everybody should listen to this is Revolution podcast. Well, Great. hopefully we can bring you and uh, and Harriet on. That'd be cool. That'd be great. Uh, and let's, and let's maybe maybe so. we'll do maybe we'll do the defund the police episode with you and uh, and Harriet. Yeah, and if it, the other thing is, I'll say listeners that haven't listened to this is Revolution podcast. I think it's like the, one of the most beautiful mixtures of, um like the actual content is so deep and so, so much food for thought and, and such, um, such an like intellectually rich set of analyses. And you will laugh a lot because Jason's really funny. I think Pascal, you're, I don't know if you think of yourself as funny, but you guys say the funniest shit. And like, and then you, (laughs) then, and then you just go into like a banter about stuff. And then you come back like into this, political economy analysis that I'm like, how did they just like, how can, how can this analysis be so much fun? So anyway, you, you guys do, do it. I can't do a show that's not fun because when the left stops being fun, then no one wants to be part of the left. Yeah. It's okay to be fun. All right, guys. I hope you have a, a great rest of your Friday and your weekend and we'll, we'll email and stuff later. Yeah. 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 Cause I might be coming down that way soon. So we'll email. Cool. All right. Peace. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans but the top 10 or 20% of Americans have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.